Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Well, the narrative of Exodus comes to a screeching halt in this week's Parsha. I don't know if you noticed that, right? If you've been following along with uh, the last couple sermons or, or, and or reading along in, in the Parsha, uh, in the Torah, it's always a good idea to, to be uh, reading along with the, with the Parsha so that we're in line with the, the rest of the, the Jewish world. Remember, Jews all over the world, we're all reading the same um, section of the Torah uh, at the same time, so it's kind of it kind of uh, aligns us with that. So it's really great. So you should have a sense um, if you've been following along of what's what's happening, right? It's kind of like uh, I, maybe uh, the uh, one of those movie trailers, right, where it's kind of going along, and all of a sudden you hear that record screech. That's kind of what I think about it. So it's maybe we can think about it like this. <clears throat> all right, you saw. How God brought them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm, with the dramatic ten plagues. You witness the dramatic rescue through the Red Sea as the waters formed into walls. You were in awe at the giving of the Ten Commandments, tablets of justice, which Hashem wrote by his very hand. <clears throat> you were still amazed by the additional Torah laws in last week's Parsha because they are a furthering of the purpose of that Torah. These rulings gave us a sense of the underlying restorative justice in the Torah, life for life. Now, witness the next part of this narrative where Moses is now given detailed instructions in building a tabernacle. Page after page of hooks and wool and curtains and metals. It's a real barn burner. Yes, we have... Oh, okay. <laughs> we have arrived at the Torah portion, Terumah, okay? These are the first few chapters that describe for Moses the precise design of the tabernacle. But, I mean, why? Right? It's not, I mean, I'm not what you would call a detail person, right? Raise your hand if you would consider yourself uh, detail-oriented. Yes, I see. I, yes, I know there are some out there, right? Okay, but what's with all the, the cubits? What, what even is a cubit, right? And the precise measurements, right? And what's the point of all this specificity? That's okay, Ray. Um, okay, and so, but it's in the Torah for a reason, yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to give away what. Uh, yeah, okay, we got it. <laughs> uh, what's What's the point of all these these details, right? It's in this section uh, of the Torah for a reason, and it's in the Torah for a reason, right? So today we're going to explore exactly why all these details are in the Torah. Okay, we can't go through all the details, but we can we can get a sense of it. So we have an idea of what we're describing here. I'm going to uh, give you a sense of the, what the tabernacle looked like. Okay, so essentially it was a, it was a tent, and it had fabric for, for the roof, and there was a courtyard, okay, and it was surrounded by a fence 
of linen and, and columns. And uh, the tent had a holy place, and then it had the most holy place, the holy of holies, sometimes called, made of acacia wood. And it was made with also solid gold, pure gold. And there were layers of curtains and different things. And inside the holy place, there were elements uh, like uh, the Ark of the Covenant, okay, which had, the, remember, the Ten Commandments inside it, uh, the tablets. And it had two cherubs, which are kind of like heavenly creatures with their wings facing each other on top. It had a, a place for the, the bread, and it had an altar a brazen altar for animal sacrifices. It had menorahs of pure gold and it had basins for, for washing, you know, after, after the sacrifice and things like that. Okay, so let's take a look at the opening of the Parsha, which will frame our understanding of the details surrounding this construction. Okay, and this is from Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel to take up a collection for me. Accept a contribution from anyone who wholeheartedly wants to give. The contribution you are to take from them is to consist of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance, fragrant incense, Onyx stones and other stones to be set for the ritual vest and the breastplate. That was what the uh, high priest would wear. They are to make me a sanctuary. Okay. So that I may live among them. That's the key part. Okay. Let's read that together. They are to make me a sanctuary so that I may live among them. That's it. That's the ballgame. You are to make it according to... Just however you want, right? No. Very specifically, everything I show you, the design of the tabernacle and the design of its furnishings, all those details, this is how you are to make it. And then we get all the details to follow. Now, someone recently asked our shamish, Eric Friedman, where did the Israelites get all this fancy stuff? To which, to which he replied, do you remember? The spoils, the plunder, yes, in Egypt. And the rabbis agree with Eric Friedman. So you will be, you're in good company. Remember, the, the God gave the Israelites favor so that when they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them all kinds of precious things, right? So we were, even though we were coming out of slavery, God has prepared us for this next step, right? We were ready to build this tabernacle. Remember, God is Lord over the details. Notice also the purpose, as I mentioned, right before the exhortation to pay attention to the details. It says they are to make me a sanctuary. In Hebrew, that's mikdash, so that I may live shachanti <clears throat> among them. Okay, let's remember these Hebrew words because we're going to come back to them. And they are related. They go together. So we have mikdash. That is sanctuary, and the root is kadosh, right? Or uh, kadash, right? Which is uh, holy. Shachanti comes from shachan, which means dwell. Where uh, we get the, uh, the liturgy, we, we sang this this morning. Shochenad marom v'kadoshemo. 
It puts those two concepts together again. He who dwells forever, exalted and holy is his name. So this dwelling and holiness, they go together. Also, we get the word Shekinah, right? That is the abiding presence of God, okay, from Shachan. So we'll put a a little bookmark there. Can we remember those words? Yes? All right, let's try Let's repeat them. Mikdash, what does that mean? Sanctuary, that's the holy place. And Shachan, and what does that mean? Dwell, right? It's the dwelling, it's the presence of God, okay? So, We understand what is the purpose of the tabernacle. God wants to dwell among his people. This is a major theme in the scriptural narrative. Going back to the relationship we had with God in the garden. The last line of Genesis 2, before Adam and Chava, you know, make the first mistake. We kind of messed up there, but we won't won't go there today, right? But this is the, the line before that, okay, in Genesis 2. It says... I'll just read it to you then. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay? Yes, there, thank you. All right? Now, this doesn't mean that they had some kind of positive self-image, right? And so they weren't ashamed. That's not what we're talking about here. Unashamed and naked, in this case, it shows vulnerability and intimacy between the man and his wife and between the couple and God. Right? How many of us have, have had that terrible dream where you're in some public place, like you go to school, and you turn out to be naked? No one's, no one's raising their hand. Is it embarrassing? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand. But we understand that this is, this is a vulnerability, right? That we would, we would only want to share that in the context of trust and intimacy, say, before God alone, right? Not before God and country, okay? Or maybe with a spouse, okay? Just like it was in the garden. But what is, does this really mean that God wants to dwell with us? What does that mean, okay? That he dwells among us. Well, if you've ever had a, a roommate, that means that you're living with them, right? You, you share a space with that person. You eat together. You do life together. There's a certain intimacy. They, they know you better than someone, you know, from the rest of the world, right? A, a wife or a, a, a husband or a roommate, for example, they might be the only one who knows that a person snores very loudly or that he sometimes requires multiple alarms and many hits of the snooze to wake up, right? Or that I liked, I mean, he... Uh, likes to make uh, chicken parmesan and pizza almost exclusively if given the choice to cook. These are all hypothetical examples. They're very intimate details that my wife would not, I mean, a person wouldn't, anyway. But you understand, we understand the point here. God wants to dwell with us in a sense to live with us, right? To know us intimately. And there are examples of this intimacy in scripture between God and Israel. For example, there, uh, God shares a meal with Israel. They eat together. In ju- and this is just one chapter earlier in Exodus 24, in last, week, last week's Parsha. He's also described, uh, and I mentioned this before, as the husband of Israel in, in the book of uh, I, uh, uh, Isaiah 
and Jeremiah and Hosea describe this intimacy that God is our husband, okay? And these are all examples of closeness and dwelling together. It's, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around it because we understand that we're talking about Almighty God, right? And yet, this is how it is. He is close to us. In a roommate situation, you're naturally affected by the other person, right? You know them, and it, it affects you. And intimacy, closeness, allows for trust and growth and, and, and a relationship. And this is the personal, relational side of God. And this is why God wants to dwell with us. He wants that closeness and that relationship. So going back to our theme of the Garden of Eden, we see that many of the details in the tabernacle, they reflect, they point back to the garden. So let's take a look at Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22. These are more instructions. You are to make a cover for the ark. Remember, this is the ark of the covenant. Out of pure gold. It is to be three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter feet high. You are to make two cherubim. Those are cherubs. Those are the heavenly creatures we're talking about. Of gold. Make them of hammered work for the two ends of the ark cover. Make one keruv for one end and the other keruv for the other end. And make the keruvim of one piece uh, with the ark cover at its two ends. The keruvim will have their wings spread out above so that their wings cover the ark. uh, And their faces are toward each other and toward the ark cover. You are to put the ark cover on top of the ark. Inside the ark you will put the testimony the, um, the covenant that I am about to give you. There I will meet with you. There's that idea again, right? I will speak with you from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubim, the two cherubs which are on the ark for the testimony about all the orders I am giving you for the people of Israel. Okay? The cherubim, the, the cherubs, all right? These are, again, heavenly creatures that they, they, they guard the way to the presence of God, okay? Where have we seen two of these creatures guarding the way to the presence of God before? Before. Yeah, that, Ezekiel looks forward, right? In, that's right, in the garden. Very good, okay? So, going back to the garden, the creation again. In Genesis 3, verses, verse 24, this is the last verse of the chapter. This is what we read. And he drove the man out, And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim, the cherubs, and a flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, do we see the connection here? The tabernacle is a way back into the presence of God with the intimacy and relationship of the garden. Remember, we were naked and unashamed. The two cherubs guarding the garden, they're replicated on the ark, right, in the tabernacle to symbolize this is like the garden 2.0, right? Other references to the garden and the creation account um, are uh, are throughout this text, right? There's uh, many sevens that appear in the tabernacle. For example, the seven branches of the menorah, right? This is... uh, a symbol of what we would have had in the tabernacle. There's seven branches. And there are how many menorahs? There are seven of those. Okay? And why, why all the sevens? Right? Because this looks back to 
creation. There were seven days of creation, and it was complete. There was a completion, and there was a goodness of the creation, including Shabbat, that is reflected in the tabernacle. Okay, speaking of representations, there is a, a rabbinic midrash in which the rabbis used to explain that all elements, um, for example, in the tabernacle are copies of something else in heaven. Okay, in other words, they don't just look back toward creation, as Wayne was telling us, but they look forward to something as well. Exodus Rabbah 33 verse 4 which is uh, rabbinic wisdom. It's collected wisdom about the Torah. Um, This is uh, the way it puts it. Midrash taught that everything God created in heaven has a replica on earth. And the Midrash taught that many things in the tabernacle reflected things in heaven. Thus, Isaiah 37, 16 reports that there are cherubim in heaven, right? The cherubim, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who sits between the cherubim. While below on earth, Exodus 25, 18 through 20, directs the Israelites to fashion two cherubs of gold to spread their wings over the ark. In other words, it's reflecting something that is in heaven. Of heaven, Psalm 104, 2 reports that God stretches out the heavens like a, like a curtain. Okay? And uh, so while on earth in Exodus 26, verse 1, directs the Israelites to create ten curtains for the tabernacle because it's reflecting something in heaven. Of heaven, Isaiah 6, verse 2, reports, above God stood the seraphim, the seraphs, while on earth, Exodus 26, 15, directs the Israelites to make boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing up. So the, uh, the standing boards of acacia wood correspond to the standing seraphim in this rabbinic midrash. Of heaven, Genesis 1-6 reports God's command, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Okay, while on earth, Exodus 26-33 directs the Israelites that a veil shall divide between the holy place and the most holy. We see it, it looks back toward creation and forward toward heaven to the world to come. Okay, of heaven, uh, Daniel reports uh, in chapter 2, 22, the light dwells with God. While on earth, in Exodus, it directs, they shall bring you pure olive oil beaten for the light. So the light in the, that we have, right, we have an eternal light that reflects um, back on the tabernacle, but it's supposed to reflect forward because God is light. Do we see these, these connections? You following with me? So we see that the tabernacle, it looks back to the garden, and then it also looks forward to eternity, which is God dwelling with us, right, in, in heaven. He is relating to us. There's a closeness to Hashem in both cases. So why did it have to be so precise, right? Why the exact measurements? Why did Moses have to measure so carefully? Because the rabbis in the Midrash that I read, they were right, the tabernacle is a copy of one. There's a, there's a real one in heaven. And so the elements point us toward the world to come. Okay? But this brings a problem. There's a problem here. Okay? God wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell within us, among us. But God is pure. God is without blemish. He is altogether good and true and perfect. 
Remember the two Hebrew words? The tabernacle is a mikdash. It's a holy, perfect place. And also God wants to dwell, shachan, by his presence. Okay? And these two ideas should go together, right? They go together when we, in, in the liturgy, when we say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And what do we do? We lift our heels so that we're closer to God, right? There's a closeness and holiness that go together. But there's a tension here, too, because they can't really go together in a sense. Anything that holy, uh, like God, cannot dwell among something so unholy as we are, right? And so Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, it ties all these things together. For every Kohen Gadol, that is the high priest, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So this high priest, too, has something he can offer. Um, now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a Kohen, a priest at all, since there are already Kohanim offering the gifts required by the Torah. But what they are serving is only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly original, right? So when the high priest would go in to the tabernacle, um, this uh, from Scripture, from the New Covenant, is stating that it's, it's sim- symbolic of Yeshua going into the real one in heaven, okay? For when Moshe was about to erect the tent, God warned him, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain, okay? In other words, it had to be exact because it was a real copy of something, okay, of the permanent one that looks... Um, that we are supposed to be oriented toward in heaven, okay? But we also see the problem here, and we see a solution. In other words, there is atonement by sacrifice in the tabernacle. This is the solution to the holiness problem. Yeshua is the fullness of that solution as the priest and also the high priest that is forever and also as the sacrifice God cannot dwell among us, among his people, if we are unclean. But through faith in Yeshua's sacrifice, we can actually be made holy, and God can dwell among us again. He unites the holiness and the dwelling together. Only Yeshua can do that fully. We have access, in a sense, back to the garden, through the cherubs, back to the heavenly presence of God through faith in Yeshua who is the high priest forever, and who is the perfect sacrifice of atonement. So here's the thing. We want God's presence, right? We need his abiding Shekhinah, right? And typically in history, when there is a surge of God's presence, it's accompanied by something. There's an action that humans typically take, and that is repentance. Genuine turning away from sin. Not in a, in a striving way, right? But a way that recognizes that Yeshua makes us holy inside by faith, and he empowers us to be morally holy and righteous in our actions. In other words, God, God wants to dwell among us, and therefore we must seek to be holy, even as he already makes us holy. Okay? So let me close with another Midrash about the reason for the tabernacle. This is in Exodus Rabbah 33. It's a story. A king had only one daughter who married another king. 
when the son-in-law king wished to return to his country and take his wife with him, the father king told him that he could neither part with his daughter nor tell her husband not to take her, as she was now his wife. So there's a problem here. The father king thus asked the son-in-law king a favor, that whenever the son-in-law king, would, wherever he went to live, that he would have a chamber, a room ready for the father king to dwell with him. For he could not bear to leave his daughter. Thus God told Israel that he had given Israel a Torah from which God could not part. And yet God could not tell Israel not to take the Torah. So God asked the Israelites to make for God a house wherein God might sojourn or travel wherever the Israelites went. And thus Exodus 25.8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So the question is, are we preparing a place for the king in our lives by our righteous living, by our repentance? Are we allowing Yeshua's atoning sacrifice to transform our hearts so that God can dwell more and more among us? Amen?